0: Well, good evening church if you'll take your copy of God's word and open with me to the book of first Samuel first Samuel chapter 13 first Samuel 13. Before we read the text let's by way of introduction let's let's think about a simple illustration you know um, I like to read military history some and I've noticed if you know any if you've paid attention to any of the wars in our in 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 world history you know that war has a way of putting people into really desperate situations right That was the position that George Washington found himself in in the fall of 1775 when he was named the commander-in-chief of the newly formed Continental Army. When Washington uh, arrived on the outskirts of Boston where the army was involved in in a siege, uh, he was completely dismayed when he learned about the condition that the Continental troops were in. He saw they were scraggly, sickly, underfed, underclothed, uh, untrained, unsanitary troops. And with winter approaching, one of the first things that Washington did was immediately recognize that his army did not even have the basic supplies needed to survive the harsh New England winter that was quickly on the way. Most of his men did not have a tent or even a blanket. He worked very hard to secure one blanket per man. And many of them did not even have shoes. Because of poor hygiene, sickness. Plagued the camp, and hundreds were dying, uh, especially during the, the summer months. And, and many were, many of the men were armed with little more than their outdated bird rifles that were uh, in use back at home on the farm. And to make matters worse, there was no more money. With no money and little enforcement, uh, the men were deserting in large numbers. Many of them were even defecting to the British troops. More of half of Washington's troops were, were set that year to be done with their enlistment. And with no money, there's no way to, to set up a, a new way to re-enlist them. So once December 31st came thousands of his men were going to go home and the army would basically cease to exist if Congress didn't do something. Things were looking very, very bad for revolutionary dreams. If you've read any of Washington's letters to Congress, you can see how worried he was that even though the the British forces were badly banged up after the Battle of Bunker Hill, they were receiving reinforcements much faster than the American troops. And if they got wind of how bad things were, If they got wind of how bad things were, he predicted that they could have easily decimated the ill-supplied, frozen, unmotivated, newly formed army before the Revolutionary War even really got off the ground. You see, dire situations have a way of testing the character and the courage of a man. And the actions that were taken by Washington, especially in those first years, especially in 1775 and 1776, cemented him as an American hero forever because of the fortitude that he showed. You see, in the text before us tonight, newly crowned King Saul is also in a desperate situation. Now granted, his situation was much, much, much more worse than that of the Continental army. But unlike Washington, Saul cracked under the pressure, and it had significant consequences. Saul made fatal decisions that would ultimately prove to be to his ruin. In the text before us tonight, we are going to see how God rejects Israel's king, the king that they chose, a worldly king, the king like the nations, because of his disobedience. God is now rejecting that king. Instead of a king with a heart like the nations, God is after a different kind of king. He's going to set up a king after his own heart. A man after his own heart. Now there are many lessons in the text before us tonight. But the main idea of the text I think is this. God's approval comes through obedience. God is seeking those who have a heart of obedience. He's seeking men and women after his own heart. And God is actually willing to place us into desperate situations to test our hearts. To see if we will obey him. And just as obedience brings God's approval, disobedience brings God's rejection. So let's look at this text together. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I would encourage you to do so. Um, But let me start. uh, Let's start reading together in chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible's amazing, isn't it? It's just, my goodness. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel... Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, "'Let the Hebrews hear.'" And all Israel heard it said that Saul, was de- that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash and to the east of Bethhaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, Verse 11, What have you done? And Saul said, when, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not, comm- you've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul so numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. We join me in prayer. Father, we come before you tonight, and we've sung about the blessings of those who plant themselves in your word, of those people who meditate upon your word day and night. And Father, we want to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that tonight that you would do supernatural things. I pray that you would further build your invisible kingdom in our lives and in our hearts and and make it visible in our lives as we love and obey and repent and forgive and give and give grace to other people. Father, I pray that tonight that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten because we need to hear from God, not a man. So, Father, would you do that? Be kind to us in that way. Open our ears to understand and our hearts to receive and let your word bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen. All right, it took me a while to get my hands around this text. This is like a geographical, like, yeah, I had the atlas out. I was trying to figure out where things were going and there's all sorts of kind of translation things going on in this text, which, which we won't talk about tonight. But here's, here's the situation as, as I understand it. Back in chapter 10, okay, a couple chapters ago, when Saul was coronated as king, Samuel had given him some instructions. You can look at this if you want. Chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. He had told him that he was supposed to go to Gilgal and attack the Philistines. That's, that's what the king was supposed to do. But once he got there, he was supposed to wait for seven days, and after seven days, Samuel was going to come and, and do the burnt offering and the peace offering. And then he was going to show Saul what he was supposed to do. So the way I understand this, there's either one of two things happening here. And I don't want to make a big thing out of this. But it appears that Saul has finally gotten around to obeying what Samuel had said two years ago. I think, I think that's what's going on here. Saul had finally, right? You remember Saul is the king who is hiding in the baggage. Right? Remember him? That's, that's really a telling thing about his character. Donald Trump was not hiding at his inauguration, was he? He was doing the very opposite of that, right? Saul was hiding in, hiding in the baggage. And, and after two years, it seems that he had finally mustered up the courage to attack even though Jonathan was the one who did it and Saul took the credit, right? But the, the other option is that maybe this is a separate instance of, of, maybe this isn't referring to chapter 10, but but Samuel had said something similar. He'd given him similar instructions, go attack and wait for seven days and then I'll come. So I'm not sure which it is, but it seems to me that he probably hadn't, hadn't obeyed from chapter 10. Um, and I'm inclined to think that that's, that's what's going on. And so, so what happens is that we're actually introduced to Saul's son, Jonathan, who's going to be a significant player in the coming chapters. And he's actually the one who, who did the fighting. With the constant threat of the Philistines all around them, Saul decides wisely it's, it's time to create a militia. Part of it he places under his control, right? 2,000 men. It seems very small. And part of it is under Jonathan's control. And then verse 3, we see that Jonathan has this minor victory over a Philistine garrison at Gibeah. But the victory isn't really that helpful, at least initially. It's really just like poking a bear, right? It was stirring up the hornet's nest. Because in response to this, the Philistines gathered a massive army. If you can see that down in verse 5. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. That totally outnumbers the Israelites' little dinky 3,000-man army. And to make matters worse, uh, if, you look, if you look over at verse 19, which we didn't read, verses 19 through 23 tell us about how the Israelites didn't even have weapons, right? They were serfs under the Philistines, and they would have to... The Philistines had gotten rid of all the blacksmiths in Israel, and so they would have to go to the Philistines and ask them to sharpen their farm equipment, or whatever it is, and they'd pay them. So the, Phil- so the Israelites didn't even have a weapon, right? So things were looking bad. This dinky little army up against this massive army and the Philistines were known for their military uh, technology. And the Israelites were scared. They were hiding in tombs, hiding in cisterns and in caves. Saul's little army is terrified. Look back down at verse verse 6 and get an idea of how much fear there's going on here, if I can find it. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in the caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan into the land of, land of Gad. And then it says, The people who stayed, they followed Saul trembling. Right? There's a lot of fear language that's, that's going on here. So I think we can go ahead and stop here and let's go ahead and make some application. Sometimes... Obeying God puts you in a difficult situation. Sometimes obeying God puts you in a difficult situation. Whether or not Saul is responding to Samuel's specific instruction back in chapter 10, it's clear that God has called Saul to drive out pagan nations out of Israel's holy land. Now, late obedience is better than no obedience, but immediate obedience is much, much better And we should remember that obeying the Lord will sometimes make your life harder. Sometimes the Lord will lead us into situations that seem worse than sin. Think about Moses, right? This happened to Moses time and time again. He boldly obeys the Lord to deliver God's message to Pharaoh as we just sang. And then what happens? Moses finds himself between a sea and an army, right? I mean, immediately, oh, he obeyed God and things got way worse for him. Obeying God's word will sometimes, perhaps even often, lead you into difficult situations. And that's when the temptation really begins to intensify. And I think that's the spiritual dynamic that's going on in this text. Have you ever felt like this, right? Have you you ever felt, I've obeyed the Lord and look what it's gotten me. Have you ever said what the psalmist says? I can't remember remember where. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Have you ever felt like that? Like it's just not working. It's just not worth it. Friends, we must resolve ourselves to obey the Lord even when obedience seems to bring new short-term problems. Because we we know that the problems are just short, short term. We have to condition our hearts, especially when we can think clearly as we're reading the scriptures. We need to condition our hearts that disobedience is far more problematic and troublesome. So when honoring the Lord seems to lead you into a dead end... Double down on your faith and ask the Lord to give you the courage to simply keep walking and to obey Him and to act out in faith. When in doubt, obey the Scriptures. There's so many times where where we find ourselves in situations that I I don't know what to do. I don't know what is wise. I don't know what is best. And the rule in our house is find something in the Bible and do it, right? When in doubt, obey. When your life seems upside down, commit yourself to radical obedience. When it seems like obedience has made your life worse, if you walk with Christ long enough, you're going to have many of these times. Turn your heart to his word and keep walking in faith. I remember a time several years ago when... I took Haley on her first, or maybe second, overnight backpacking trip. We were in the Pisgah Pisgah Mountains and had a, a two night trip planned, and and I had spent weeks planning this trip. All right, I had I I'd mapped. All sorts of routes and alternate routes. I wanted it to be perfect, and we had planned this 30-mile loop in the Shining Shining Rock area. And 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 well, I've got there, and the trip really tested my backcountry navigation skills. I mean, it really. We would walk, and I'd stop and pull out the map and the compass because it was way more tricky than I thought. It's that area has is, is a, a zillions of trails just crisscrossing, crisscrossing everywhere, and it was really annoying because I was constantly stopping us to check to check the directions and. Now, there were a few times that I made some wrong turns, right? I'll I'll admit that, and Haley will affirm that. But I remember, especially at the beginning, there's this one particular trail that we started on, and we parked, it was like Memorial Day, or July 4th weekend, and the parking lot was packed. And there were all these people and they were all on this one trail and I was like honey we're going on this trail and we look at it and it's like overgrown and covered in thorns and briars I mean it was clearly not the trail that was popular <laughs> and and I was I was like we're going this is the route that I planned and when you're planning on the computer at home you don't know how the thorns you know and uh, and so Haley was a good sport so we're bushwhacking our way through this trail and I'm like Aren't you?" having fun honey and um and and she kept saying are you sure we're going the right way now at this point this is the very beginning of the trip and I was very very sure that we were going the right way I wasn't sure if my plan was good but I was sure that we were we were on my you know on my plan and it got worse after like 30 minutes of this the trail turned into like a creek Right if you've been hiking, you know sometimes when it's wet when it's wet, the trail is like where the water goes, and so you're like hiking up a creek, so we're bushwhacking thorns and bugs, like walking in four inches of water, and Haley's thinking, why did I marry this guy or follow him into the woods right?" And, and it didn't get any better. It just kept getting, it kept getting worse. And I kept telling Haley, trust me, you know, we don't have much, we don't have much further to go. And after about an hour and a half, the trail opened up and we found out we were exactly where we had wanted to be. And things got better uh, af- after that until we got lost. Uh. <laughs> Now, now, Haley had plenty of reasons to doubt my navigational abilities, as I later proved. But we never have a reason to doubt God's path. We never have a reason to doubt God's path. God will never get you lost. You may be bushwhacking through the creek and through the through the thorns, but God will never get you lost. He knows what He's doing with your life. And you will never regret obedience in the long run. He, make you, he may take you through difficult places. He may even walk you along a cliff. But you can always trust him. Keep putting one foot in front of the other in obedience. Saul struggled to remember this, and so did his men. Last week we saw back in chapter 12, Samuel gives this big kind of farewell speech from from his political role uh, over Israel. And, And the main thrust of the speech was, remember all the righteous deeds of the Lord and obey. Remember the righteous deeds of the Lord and obey. And it's for occasions like this that we desperately need to remember God's resume. This brings us to a second point. You see, after Saul and Jonathan's initial victory, things got a lot worse. And so a second point I think we can draw from this is that desperate circumstances are times of testing and temptation, right? We saw that back in James chapter 1. Desperate circumstances are always times of testing, not only did Saul have this massive army that outnumbered him, but his men were deserting, right? They were hiding. They were crossing the river. They were fleeing the country. And Saul feels the very legitimate need to, to take immediate action before his army just disappears, just like Washington did. And here he is. He's sitting at Gilgal, and what's he have to do? Wait on Samuel. What is that guy doing? Surely he's, like, reading a book somewhere, or, well, I mean, what is this guy doing he's he's waiting i can't i can't imagine he's waiting on samuel to come do kind of religious ritual things And by the time they're done, Saul has 600 men left. That's what the text says there towards the end of the chapter. And his enemies have more than 30,000 men. So 30,000 to, I think it's 36,000 maybe. The odds are like 60 to 1. So each Israelite needs to kill 60 guys and they'll be good. Or they'll be even, right? But these are just the the kind of odds that God likes, aren't they? Does this remind you of anyone else? Gideon. This story is intended to remind you of Gideon. The author is dropping very very obvious clues that should make us think of Gideon if we read our Bibles enough because just like Gideon, Saul faced impossibly long odds. And just like Gideon, Saul actually blows a ram's horn. That was also a part of the of Gideon's story. And just like Gideon, you can go look this up in Judges chapter 6 verse 2. It's almost word for word with verse 6, right? Just like Gideon the enemy is compared to the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of enemies. And it seems clear that Saul, the chosen king, the guy that was picked by the people to go out and fight our battles, he needs to be Gideon like. He needs to, to take a page out of his book. And so the obvious question is what's Saul going to do? What's, what's he going to do? Is he going to obey the voice of the Lord which was given through Samuel? Samuel spoke for God. Is he going to wait for Samuel and come? Is he going to wait for him to come and make the sacrifices? Really the question, if you can feel the tension building, is who is Saul going to fear the most? God or the enemy? We remember how Samuel's speech ended in chapter 12, verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. But the circumstances here are just too much for Saul. He just heard that speech, but they're just too much. It seems like he manages to wait like six and a half days. that's, That's how I take the text. He was like almost there. He was almost there, but he cracked. Unlike Gideon, Saul chooses to trust in himself instead of the Lord. Saul chooses to disobey the voice of the Lord spoken through Samuel. And so Saul makes the sacrifice himself. A job that's reserved only for the priests. And in fact, if you read the text carefully, there are two sacrifices involved and Saul only did one of them. He either got distracted or forgot or didn't know how to do the peace offering or whatever it is. But but think about it. The sacrifice, what was it intended to do? It was intended to, to signal. It was intended to make it clear that we depend on God. Right? That was the whole point of the sacrifice. To make it clear that we depend on God. Yet what was Saul doing? He was making it clear through his disobedience that he doesn't depend on God. Disobedience always communicates, I don't trust God. I don't depend on God. Saul was just going through the motions, right? He was just going through the motions. Could it be that there are times in our life when we trick ourselves into thinking that we're depending on the Lord, when we're really just depending on ourselves, Maybe when we're going through some sort of religious motion, but we're just trusting in ourself. We can tell when that happens. Every time we sin. Whenever our own wisdom, whenever your own wisdom leads you to violate God's word instead of obeying it, you know that you're trusting in yourself. One of the greatest questions that hangs over our everyday decisions is who will you choose to fear? God or man? Do you care about what God thinks more or what man thinks? We don't have time to explore that really the fear of man in, in the time tonight, but the question is this, will we choose to obey the Lord or live according to our own understanding? You see, whenever our wisdom leads us to disobey the clearly revealed word of the Lord, we can be certain it's not wisdom. It's foolishness. It's folly. Sin will never solve your problem. Sin will never solve your problem. That seems so obvious until you're tempted, right? Sin will never solve your problem. You see, when our circumstances become totally overwhelming, we're so tempted to try to solve our problems with sin. Some of you are facing 60 to 1 odds in your marriage, and things seem totally hopeless. And you're tempted to try to solve your problem, your marriage problem, with sin. Maybe divorce is the solution or maybe you can just disengage or maybe you feel justified to to lash out in anger or to manipulate. Some of you are facing 60 to 1 odds in some other circumstance. Maybe it's a it's a battle of your mind. Maybe you're being tempted to think that your life feels so empty without that new thing you want to buy. Or maybe life feels so empty without the comfort of sugar. Or maybe your life feels so empty if you can't have that quick sexual gratification. Surely, it seems, you can't face life without those comforts. Obedience just seems too costly. There are times when it seems easier to just die than obey. There are. But those are the most important moments in your life. Who will you fear, God or man? Saul's circumstances were so scary and so overwhelming that he convinced himself or deceived himself into thinking that he could actually gain God's favor by making the sacrifice himself. But we can never gain God's favor or God's assistance through obedience. Sin will never make your life better. Ever. Sometimes that's obvious, and sometimes it's not. Sin will never make your life better. Human wisdom will certainly disagree. Sometimes, perhaps many times, obedience will make your life harder in the short term. Just ask Stephen when he was being stoned. Just ask Paul when he was in prison. Just ask Christ on the road to Calvary. The most important question that governs our daily decisions is, who will we fear the most, God or man? And we know by who we obey. Saul couldn't hack it. When the moment of strain came, when obedience was actually hard, obedience when it's easy, okay, that's one thing. But when obedience is hard, when there's 60 to 1 odds against you, he feared the armies of God. He feared, he feared the armies of man more than the Lord of hosts. And it ruined him, literally. But things got worse. Right when Saul decided to disobey and offer the sacrifices himself, Samuel showed up. I can't imagine this conversation. That must have been awkward. And he radically rebuked Saul's disobedience. If only he had held on a little longer. I'm learning that so often, faithful Christian discipleship comes down to a matter of holding on a little longer. Trusting in God's timing. God's timing never makes sense, does it? It never makes sense in the moment. I can't think of any time in my life where it made sense, right? God's timing is not the same as our timing. Your difficulties will always seem to drag on longer than it seems good to you. (laughs) I mean, always. It's always going to be the case. And God's timing almost always seems slow to us. But I think that so often God intentionally delays our deliverance just to see if we'll trust him. That's exactly what he was doing with Saul. But I think there's a third major thing that we can learn from this text is, and we've seen this all throughout the book of Samuel, and we're going to keep seeing it, so I'm going to keep saying it, that God's approval comes through our obedience, and God's rejection comes with our disobedience. Down here in verse 11, Samuel shows up and says, What have you done? And what does Saul do? He's got all sorts of excuses, right? All sorts of excuses. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But down in verse 13, Samuel delivers the verdict. This is the key. These are the most important verses in this text. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel tells Saul that if he had obeyed, God would would have established his kingdom forever. But instead of his kingdom being established, it's going to be given to another man. Now, Saul's going to remain in power for quite some time. It gives a lot of drama to the book of 1 Samuel. But the, this is the beginning of God's rejection of Saul, right? And that's what we see back at the beginning of, if you remember Hannah's song, like God is opposing, he puts his hand against those who are pride, pr- uh, proud. God's obedience brings God's approval, and disobedience brings God's rejection. Now, at first glance, this consequence seems too severe, right? It seems like an overreaction. But I think that this should remind us that sin is more dangerous than we think. Sin is more serious than we think. You cannot safely tinker with sin. All of us have these sins that we're kind of comfortable with. You cannot tinker with sin. It's like sleeping with a boa constrictor in your bed. Sure, you might be a little warmer, but if you cuddle up to sin, it's going to eventually kill you. Samuel's words here tell us a lot about what God was doing and it shows us that that God desires so much more than our half-hearted obedience. God is seeking men and women who have a heart like his, men and women after his own heart. That is he's seeking those hearts who will obey his law no matter what the cost is. Remember this is a theme in Samuel. Man looks at what the outward appearance, right? But the Lord looks at the heart. When man looked at Saul, they saw a tall, handsome guy. But when things got tough, when the temperature in his life was turned up, his actions revealed that he was not much of a man. It revealed what was in his heart. God permits his people to go through difficult trials in order to find out what's in our hearts. He already knows, but I think he's doing it to expose us, to expose it to us And that's ultimately what he cares about. God cares so much more about your sanctification than your comfort. He cares more about your holiness than your comfortable circumstances. God cares more about the condition of your heart than the health of your body. And you'll see that throughout your life. And God will. He will put us in situations where we are facing 60 to 1 odds that expose our hearts. Here we are introduced to this famous phrase that you hear all the time, that the Lord is seeking a man after his own heart. And we're starting to get a picture of what that really means. So let's conclude by thinking about a couple things that we learn about a man after God's own heart. I've got three things here. I had seven, now I have three. We all know that David is, King David is the one who succeeds Saul and is ultimately the one that God establishes as king. David is the guy who gets the name, the man after his own heart, right? And, and, and David's place of honor is that Jesus eventually comes through his bloodline. And I think one of the first things that we can learn about a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart is that a man after God's own heart always obeys Even when it's hard, he obeys even when it's hard. God tested Saul, and the test revealed that his heart was not wholly given to the Lord. It was given to other things, and this is proven throughout his life. This is what God is looking for in the world men and women who will obey and submit to his rule, even when obedience scares you to death, even when it's terrifying. The true king, God's true king, will receive God's approval and all the perks that come with that, and there are perks, through faithful obedience to his word. And as we continue through 1 Samuel, we're going to see that David is the one who does this. David is the one who has faith in God, even when he's standing before a Goliath giant and the Philistines. All of Israel is, again, shaking in their boots. And this time they actually have swords, right? And Saul is back hiding in his tent. And David is the one who trusts in God. David is the one who chooses not to harm King Saul up in chapter 24 when when Saul is in the cave at, at Adullam. David is the one who will obey God's word even under the greatest stress. A man after God's own heart obeys but I think another thing we should see is that a man after God's own heart repents. He repents. We all know that David, right, the man after God's own heart commits the most infamous, infamous sin in all of the Bible. Right? I've always wondered, how, does that, how is he the man after God's own heart if he did that, right? I've never, under, never really understood that. What is so different about David's sin with Bathsheba and Saul's impatience, right? Have you asked that question? I mean, doesn't it seem like Saul's sin is not as big as David's? What's the difference? Repentance. The difference is. Repentance. When Samuel confronted Saul about his sin, he did what so many of us do when we're confronted. He did what my daughter does when she is confronted, right? He made excuses. My dolls did it. My legs don't work, right? Like we get some exciting. Right? And he made excuses. Saul blamed it, verse 11, on all of his circumstances, right? The people are, they're scattering. I had, I had to do it. He blamed it on Samuel, verse 11. I saw that you did not come. Have you ever experienced that? You talk with someone about their sin, and all of a sudden it's your fault, right? He foolishly trusted in his own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. He even defended it. Yet we know that we're called to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. And yet Saul specifically leaned on his own understanding. You see, when you're confronted by others, and I hope you have people in your life who talk with you about your sin. When you have other people confront you about sin, either by other people or by the scriptures, what do you do? Do you make excuses? Do you blame others? Do you defend your own wisdom? Right? We talked about this on Sunday. Well, Samuel says that's what a fool does. And the language he uses here is strong. It's not like a bad decision. You are a fool when you disobey. Verse 13, you have done foolishly and not kept the command of the Lord your God. The key difference in Saul and David was not just that David obeyed more, but it's that when David sinned, he repented. When David sinned, he repented. He fully owned his sin, no excuses. I was reading what he said in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and against you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight so that you may be justified and blameless in your judgment. God's approval comes when we obey. But God's approval also comes when we confess and repent of our sins. That's the gospel message You can be made right with God, not by cleaning up your life, but by owning your sin and calling out for help. It seems that the more I grow in my walk with the Lord, the more sin I see. It's like my gap is getting bigger, right? The more sin I see, my bottom line is going further and further down. And you see, the more you grow in your walk with the Lord, the quicker you'll repent because the cross gets bigger And so you see the mercy is bigger than the sin. You see the cross is huge. One final thing about a man after God's own heart. Only Jesus is the man after God's own heart. In the Bible, David is not the hero. He's not. Don't teach it like that to your kids. David is not the hero. David isn't even really the man after God's own heart. David's just a sinner saved by grace who points to the man after God's own heart. Jesus, the son of David, is the only true man after God's own heart. Why? Because Jesus actually had God's heart. He is God. And he's given it to us. David's kingdom was not about David. It was about Jesus. And that's why God tells David up ahead in Samuel chap- 2 Samuel chapter 7. I read this at Christmas time. It's an important prophecy. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, talking to David, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. He's talking about Solomon, but then he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's looking forward to Christ. In the line of David and Solomon. He's not just talking about Solomon, he's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is our only hope for acceptance with God. You see, just as we said in the beginning, God's acceptance is only for those who obey Him. God rejects those who disobey. So what hope do I have as a sinner? I don't always obey Him. What hope do I have? The only hope is to find acceptance with God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And that's not just that you would be saved, but that you would be close to God and united with God and not afraid of God, that we would be a people who are quick to repent. The true man after God's own heart was Jesus. He always obeyed no matter how much it cost him. And it cost him a lot. Praise God for the obedience of Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ, who obeyed in all of the times that we have failed. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people who do not sink in shame at our sin, but who boldly own it, because we trust in Christ. I thank you that as sinners, we can approach your throne of grace with confidence knowing that Christ intercedes in our behalf. Father, help us to be a people who hate our sin, but who are not drowning in guilt, but who walk in freedom, knowing that we have been given new hearts and set free. We ask this in your name. Amen.